Well, hello and welcome to Grace, everyone. We just say a big shout out to Saratoga, to Greenbush, Half Moon, and Latham, because we're one church meeting at these different locations. We're so glad you're a part of worship today. You know, I think most of us are subjected or exposed to advertising just about every moment of every day of our lives. And when you think about it, it comes at us from all these different directions. So I thought I would Google this topic and just try to get a little insight into, hey, which advertising is most effective today? Now, as you might guess, the experts tend to disagree about that. Uh, almost everyone agrees that carefully crafted and well-posed internet advertising can be one of the most cost-effective ways to go. But here was what I was shocked at as I read a number of articles and blogs uh, from people who are supposedly experts on marketing and advertising. I was surprised at a couple of old-school ways. For instance, radio. I thought that was blasé. I thought that was out, but no... The experts say it can still be a great way depending on the market you're going after and, and so on in your community. And here's the one that really stunned me. I would have never guessed. Billboards. Almost everyone agreed that billboards were one of the most cost-effective ways to advertise your product or service. Now, I'm sure you've got your own opinion about all that and what advertising you believe is most effective. But I've got a different question for you today. What advertising is best for the church? Have you ever thought about that? Which kind of advertising would be the most effective for a church? Well, interestingly enough, today's passage, Acts chapter 5, I believe answers and speaks to that question in a big way. Now, you may remember a few weeks ago when we started this series, we looked at Acts 1 where Jesus gave a special message to the disciples that he was leaving behind, those 120 or so. He said, you're going to be my witnesses. He says, look, here's how it's going to happen. The Holy Spirit's going to come on you, and you're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It's as though he was saying, look, you're going to be a blazing billboard for me. You're going to be an advertisement as you represent me both near and far. So this week, as we explore this amazing story... In Acts 5, I'm actually going to suggest to you that the best advertising for the church is a Christian, a real Jesus follower with integrity. I truly believe that. Now, the problem is that sometimes we send out messages that don't really represent him well. We communicate things that we don't really want to. So I'm going to suggest three billboards in this message. You may want to jot some notes at this point, fill in a few blanks or whatever, put your own thoughts there if that's helpful to you. Billboard number one, the church is filled with hypocrites. 
Now, I've heard that all my life, haven't you? I've heard all my life that the church is just full of hypocrites. And folks, if that's true, then we got a big PR problem. I hope you would agree. Because no one wants to be a part of a community that's just filled with a bunch of phonies. And yet I continue to hear that excuse from people. Well, pastor, now I'd come to church, but you know, if it weren't for all those hypocrites. And through the years, I've just learned to say, oh, I hear you say you're concerned about all the hypocrites at the church. Well, listen, come on and join us anyway. We can always use one more. Yeah, we can. You're welcome here. Now, when people say that, I'll be honest, I'd like to get my righteous indignation up and go, no, no way, that's not true. There aren't hypocrites in the church, but I know better because I know myself, and I think I know people, and I know that no one is 100% consistent. Our walk never totally in this life matches up to our talk. And all of us, in one way or another, either in small degrees or great, we fall short of what we profess to believe. And as we're going to see today in Acts 5, it doesn't take long in the life of the early church for hypocrisy to rear its ugly head. Some of you may remember who George Burns was. This old, old, he lived to be very old. He was a comedian, dry sense of humor. And George Burns was fond of saying, Sincerity is the key to success. Once you've learned to fake that, you've got it made, right? But study after study after study shows that the number one quality people are looking for in their leaders is honesty. A sincere authenticity that I really believe what I say I believe and I'm willing to put my life behind it. They don't just want that in their leaders. They want that in their coworkers and their colleagues and their neighbors. No one likes a phony in the neighborhood or the workplace, and they certainly don't want phoniness in the church. So Acts chapter 4 tells us about a man who was the real deal. His name was Joseph. But he was so encouraging to the church in what he did and how he lived, he walked his talk that they actually gave him a new name, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Imagine that, a man who is so encouraging through his actions that they actually gave him the name Mr. Encouragement, son of encouragement. He was respected for his integrity. He was applauded publicly before the church and recognized. Now, folks, any time that occurs, guess what? There's going to be envy and jealousy. Anytime someone gets recognized for a genuine virtue, there will be people who try to fake that in a hypocritical way. And that's indeed what happens. Acts 5, verse 1. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, sold, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. 
Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you've lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? In other words, you didn't have to give it all. That's just totally your choice. What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied to men, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then the young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. Now think about it. Ananias and Sapphira, this married couple, contrived a plan to get more attention and praise, but their plan backfired, and they were exposed as phonies. You may remember some years ago when Ashley Simpson was going to be a part of a big public event. She was going to sing, and she was going to lip sync a song that was pre-recorded. But <laughs> tragically, they played the wrong song, and it was an absolute embarrassing fiasco. But but here's what made it so bad. You see, it's not uncommon for top-level performers to lip-sync at times. It happens at the Super Bowl all the time. It happens in all kinds of public venues. That's not unusual, okay? That's well-known fact. But the thing is, Ashley had made a big deal that she never lip-syncs to vocal tracks, and she never would, she declared adamantly. And so this was incredibly embarrassing. The truth was out and her lie was exposed. And that's what happened to Sapphira as she strolled in, completely unaware of her husband's sudden death. Let's pick it back up in verse 7. About three hours later, his wife came in not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Yes, she said. That's the price. Peter said to her, how could you agree to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. I assume that Ananias and Sapphira started out with a great idea of blessing the church by selling this property and giving the money away. But somewhere along the way, they contrived toward deceit. And like a snowball, it continued to roll, and their integrity was sacrificed in pursuit of popularity. Their self-righteousness was worth more to them than honesty. Now, folks, if we'll be honest, all of us have been hypocrites at times. Anytime we act differently than what we profess to believe, we're being hypocritical. And Jesus saved his most scathing rebuke for religious leaders who were phony and hypocritical. He said in Matthew 23, in the same way, on the outside, you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside, you're full of hypocrisy and wickedness. So why do we do that? Because we're into image management. We are afraid if people knew how we really are, how weak we really are, they wouldn't 
respect us. And so we put up this front of being unwavering and solid. We manage our image beautifully. But it's not real. Proverbs 11.3 says, The integrity of the upright guides them, but the unfaithful are destroyed by their duplicity. Now, next, last week, we saw that church next is going to be mostly filled with ordinary people who do extraordinary things because they're inspired with courage by the Holy Spirit. But this week, I'd like to add this, and they will live transparent lives of integrity because that's the absolute best advertisement for God's church as we seek to represent him well. Church is full of hypocrites. There's a kernel of truth in that, I will assure you. But oh, may it not be so in church next. The second billboard I want to present to you also has a kernel of truth, but it's an exaggeration. Billboard number two, the church is filled with judgmental people. Now, is there a kernel of truth in that? I think so. I think there are some Christians who believe that God has called them to be both judge and jury of brothers and sisters around them, non-Christians. You may wonder, what verse do they know the best in the Bible? Unbelievers, people outside the church. You say, it's got to be John 3.16. No, it's not. Here's the verse that most unbelievers know well and use frequently. Judge not, lest you be judged. Judge not, but sadly, they don't read on in Mark, Matthew 7 where Jesus said that. Jesus, in that context, tells about, listen, don't be all bothered about the speck in your brother's eye when you've got a plank in your own. First, deal with the plank in your own eye, remove that, and then you'll see clearly to be able to help your brother with the speck in his eye. Jesus didn't say your brother's speck in his eye, meaning there's an issue there. It's none of your business. Jesus never taught that. He taught us you'd better be always critiquing yourself, checking yourself, but you need to be concerned about what's going on in your brother or sister's life. So this whole matter of judging is one of the most horribly misunderstood issues in the church. We are told by Jesus in that same chapter, Matthew 7, that we would be able to know a real follower by his or her fruit. You'll know who the real deal is by the fruit of their life. By their fruit, you will recognize them, Jesus said. And every real Christian ought to deeply care how their fellow brothers and sisters are living. About a year and a half ago, I had a special privilege of uh, of getting a notice from my high school that I graduated from, gee, next year will be 40 years ago. Can you believe that? And they were calling all the basketball players of this particular team uh, my junior year back together for a special celebration. You see, we had gone to the state tournament that year and gone deeply into the tournament. It had been an amazing team. And through the years, it's been one of the most talked about, most beloved teams that Lawrence County, Tennessee ever had. 
And so we were all being called back for this special event where during the middle of a varsity game, they were going to hoist this banner to the ceiling of Ralph Benson Memorial Gymnasium. And so we were asked to be there to be a part of this recognition. And so I was glad to go and see my teammates again. Believe it or not, I literally did not recognize some of them, you know. And uh, it was just a great time to celebrate and be together again. But we began to talk about Coach Benson, the one that the gym is now named after. He was somewhat of a legend in Lawrence County. And he insisted on discipline on and off the court. The discipline on the court was legendary. But off the court, here were some of his codes. This was the code you had to live by if you were going to be a part of this basketball team. No booze. No girls. No late night partying. Get plenty of sleep. And for God's sake, get rid of the junk food and eat a balanced, nutritious meal during the season. Those were Coach Benson's rules. Now, he did not know, but those rules were broken regularly. But here's what I noticed during that championship year when we went on to win the district and then win the regional tournament and went deep into the state tournament. Here's what I noticed. At the beginning of the season, nobody much cared what their fellow teammates were doing. Breaking the rules, who cares? No big deal. Just don't let Benson know. Don't let Coach know. But as we began to win, we began to get on each other. If we heard about somebody who was breaking the code, because we cared, because we knew if we were going to win, we were all going to have to win together, and we needed together to ensure that we were going to be the best we could be. At its best, friends, I think that's what the church ought to be. We're God's team. We're in it to win it, folks. We've been called to a high and glorious goal to represent Jesus well, to bring glory to his name, and if you're a real Christian, you ought to care deeply about what your brother or sister is doing. Are they keeping God's code? And that's something the world doesn't understand and, of course, could never understand until they have a real relationship with Christ. Are we living by the code? And so I want to mention two kinds of disciplines that help us do that. The first is great. I love this one. It's what you might call preventive discipline. This is not in your notes, but you just may want to jot these words down. Preventive discipline. What is that? Preventive discipline is sharing through words and showing through lifestyle what God's standard is so people can see it clearly and then live it. Let me say that again. It's sharing through words and showing through lifestyle what God's standards are, what the code is, in other words. Coach Benson had a code. God's got a code. It's found in the Bible, a moral code for how he wants us to live. And we share that and show that so clearly that it's easy for people to catch and to live. Now, we do a ton of preventive discipline at Grace. By the way, our covenant membership code is all preventive discipline. That's all it is. It's saying, I'm going to engage in these disciplines like prayer and be a student of God's word, and I'm going to be regular in my worship, and I'm going to uh, be faithful with, as steward of what God's given to me uh, in terms of material things, and I'm going to engage in meaningful relationships, and I'm going to use the gifts God's given me and serve. Those are, the, those are all preventive disciplines. Awesome stuff. Every real Christian ought to be engaged in those. 
And so every time we preach a sermon, every time we teach a lesson, every time we have a small group where we're talking about how to have a better marriage, how to walk in holiness, how to live a more uh, functional Christian life, every time we do that, that's a form of preventive discipline. And it helps people to flourish. And it helps us to win together. I heard about a dad who lost his wallet, and the family turned the house upside down but could not find it. Next day, there was a knock on the door, and there was a woman standing there with her small son beside her, and she said, are you, are you St Sam Stone, sir? He said, well, yes, I am. And he saw his wallet in her hand. He said, oh, you found my wallet. Where was it? We've been turning the house upside down. He said, but I, I thought maybe I dropped it at this particular gas station parking lot, but I went back and couldn't find it anywhere. And she said, yeah, that's where my husband found it. But he didn't turn it in to the employees there because he wasn't sure he could trust them to really get it back to you. And so this is the first opportunity we've had to bring it back. And Mr. Stone was so delighted. He said, wait right here. I want to give you a reward for bringing that. She said, no, 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 sir. Thank you. I don't want a reward. I just want my son to grow up and be an honest man. And I've got a suspicion that he did because he saw something rare in his mom and dad. He saw integrity. Integrity. Albert Schweitzer, the great leader, the great servant of humanity who started an amazing hospital in Africa, said, example is not the best way of teaching, it's the only way of teaching. So preventive discipline is huge. But the second type of discipline that nobody likes and nobody wants to even talk about these days, and I don't either, but i got to mention it, because it's what our story is about today, is corrective discipline. Now here's the deal. If we have enough healthy preventive discipline, we hardly ever need corrective discipline. One of the things I love about grace is there's been virtually no need for corrective discipline because our members are already engaging in preventive disciplines. But occasionally, we have to engage in corrective discipline. Pardon me for mentioning the basketball team again, but maybe this will be a somewhat helpful analogy. On the basketball team, Coach Benson had a number of ways to bring corrective discipline. Spoiler alert, this first one is barbaric. When I went to school, in high school, we got two grades for every class. We got an academic grade, A, B, C, or D. But we also got a grade, A, B, C, or D, for what was called deportment. Some of you who grew up in my generation may know what I'm talking about. We got a grade also for deportment. In other words, our conduct. Were we kind? Were we respectful? How do we conduct ourselves as a human being in the class, okay? We got a grade for that as well. Now, here was Coach Benson's rules. You had to make a C or above to stay on the team, but there's no corrective discipline there. You just were off the team if you weren't passing, man, or weren't doing pretty well. But if you got a C in deportment, this is old school, okay, you got one blow with a paddle on your butt with just your gym shorts on. If you got a D, you got two strikes with that paddle. If you got an F, that's three blows with that paddle, and that's just for one class, just for one class. Now, thankfully, thankfully, that was discontinued a couple of years after I graduated. 
But other forms of corrective discipline were like, if you broke the code, you would have to run maybe for up to an hour, run the steps in the gym after practice all by yourself. Or you would be suspended maybe for a game or two for breaking the code. And because Coach Benson was so consistent with this through the years, he was known for suspending a top scorer during a tournament because he broke the team rules. So because of that consistency, he was greatly respected. Now notice in our story today, there is a dramatic corrective discipline. This is not the norm, folks. I want you to know that if you're new to Christianity. If it were the norm, we'd have to open up a morgue out in our lobby, I'm sure, okay? The norm for corrective discipline is described a number of places, like Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 5. Matthew 18 says, look, someone sinned, you go to them privately, and you have a healthy conversation about it. It may get resolved right there. If it's not resolved there, then you bring a couple of other witnesses with you and you go back and see if you can resolve it there. And if the person persists in sin, we're not talking about some weird idiosyncrasy or like I don't like the way you dress. That's not, we're talking about blatant, clear, persistent, ongoing sin that is against God's code for his team. Then you tell it to the church. You bring it to the leadership of the church. And then there is corrective discipline brought, which usually means some form of disfellowship until the issue is resolved. So that's what usually happens. But in this case, there is something very dramatic. Peter confronted them, but God was so grieved by their actions, appearing to be something they weren't, he took them out. Whoo, you say, don't you think that's extreme? I do. (laughs) I do. I think that's pretty dramatic. It feels a little over the top for me, but I think God was sending a strong message. If hypocrisy isn't stopped early, it spreads. There's a message in the Bible that appears over and over again. It goes like this. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. And if something like this, this kind of poison is not dealt with, it will soon be contagious and go throughout the body. Years ago, the Listerine mouthwash company had this saying on their label, and they advertised this, clinically proven as effective as flossing. But after they'd used that saying for years and years, finally the company was ordered to no longer make that claim that gargling their mouthwash was just as effective as flossing because study after study after study had shown that it just wasn't true. Sounds great. Most people would rather just gargle a little mouthwash than floss, but it just wasn't working that way. And so Listerine, instead of just removing all those bottles, they decided to send out 4,000 of their employees to relabel all those bottles and get rid of that false message. You say, wow, (laughs) that was expensive and that was drastic, yes, but the company knew the lesson that God was teaching the church 2,000 years ago. Nothing kills the progress of a product or an organization faster than a false advertisement. And Ananias and Sapphira were like a false advertisement. And without some discipline, that poison 
is going to spread. So instead of 4,000 employees, God's corrective discipline is two funerals. By the way, if you want to read more about this, go home and read Joshua chapter 7, where a man named Achan kept some spoils of battle that were off limits, but he did it anyway, and he too experienced a dramatic result. If you're curious about that, go home and read it. So the Lord is sending this clear message. Integrity is huge. The reputation of the church really means something. And the Spirit won't bless the church if duplicity and hypocrisy is the norm. Ananias and Sapphira wanted probably to be known as Mr. and Mrs. Generosity. But instead they ended ended up as Mr. and Mrs. Six Foot Under. God cares about the reputation of his church, and the best advertisement is a Christian with integrity. I hear people say, oh, pastor, I, I really love the church. I want to be a part of the church, but you know, I, I really don't know if I want to be accountable. Really? Any church where there's no genuine accountability for actions is not a real church. You can call it what you want, but it's not a real church. A church where there's no accountability for living according to the code, just like a basketball team, it would soon become a colossal joke. It would just be a joke. And sadly, sadly, that's what many communities degenerate into. Understand I want to be sure you understand this, that the goal of church discipline is never condemnation, it's restoration. It's always restoration of the Christian and the reputation of the church. Well, there's one more billboard I want to show you, and the other two were exaggerations with a kernel of truth, and conversely, I think this one is mostly true, but there are some exceptions. The church is filled with people of integrity. Now, I think while that's mostly true, wouldn't it be true, wouldn't it be great if that were always true? Wouldn't it be great if that were the norm, that the church was just packed to the gills with honest believers whose walk matched our talk, where there wasn't even a hint of hypocrisy or a pinch of phoniness or a dash of deceit in our lives. Wouldn't that be awesome? Oh, I want to be a part of a community like that. Well, after the sudden deaths of Ananias and Sapphira, the church experienced a period of intense purity. Eugene Peterson writes in his paraphrase called The Message, by this time, the whole church, and in fact, everyone who heard of these things, had a healthy respect for God. They knew God was not to be trifled with. Oh, how I wish more people understood that today. But I believe that in church next, integrity, integrity will be the norm. Reader's Digest carried the true story of a businessman from Southfield, Michigan, who decided to drive his secretary home because she had had too much to drink at the afternoon office party reception. It was a completely innocent gesture on his part, 
but he decided not to tell his wife about it because she tended to get jealous rather easily. So he dropped his secretary off, he waved goodbye, and then went immediately to pick up his wife. They were going to go out to eat at their favorite restaurant. And on the way to the restaurant, the man had a moment of panic because he looked down and there was a high-heeled shoe half concealed beneath the passenger seat. He was sweating bullets. And so he waited for a moment until his wife was looking out her window when with one motion he scooped, knelt, he went down, scooped the shoe up and tossed it out the window and then kept on driving. And then as he pulled into the parking lot of the restaurant, his wife began to squirm around and said, honey, have you seen my other shoe? The truth will always come out in the end. So tell the truth at the beginning and life will be less complicated. When the church is filled with people of integrity, there will always be a positive result. Acts 5.14 shows us that there will be spiritual growth and numerical growth and an awesome impact in the community. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. That's the result. When the church is filled with people of integrity because the best advertisement for the church is a Christian with integrity. As we close today, I, I want to share with you just a couple of these brief stories of compassion. There's dozens of them coming in. We're so excited about all God is doing. I wish, I wish we could literally read to you every one of these stories, but I've just chosen a couple again this week that I'm going to quickly share with you. This one is from Leo Taggart, and it asks, how did you feel when you first understood the assignment? Leo says, I became excited because the Holy Spirit put a person immediately on my mind. How did you decide where and how to use the money, Leo? Well, there's this elderly Chinese man who picks up cans and plastic bottles along Delator Road and Route 2. He consistently works hard to find and then redeem his recyclables up at Market Bistro Price Chopper. At 70 plus years old, he must put in six to 10 miles a day just to make a living. How did you use the money? Leo writes, after sharing the compassion message from Rex with a few people, the $100 grew to $300. I was able to bless the gentleman in front of Roman Pizza Tuesday afternoon about 5.15 p.m. My iMessage to my daughter at college was this. Great moment when we met near Roman Pizza. He speaks no English. It was me playing charades just to share that God has a gift for him. He received it well. He had such love in his eyes when we met. God prepared his heart for the moment and answered a prayer. There was a complete Holy Spirit ease with this assignment. What a great story. Let me re read one more. That's good. Yeah. This one is from Lena Walsh. And just so you know, Lena works in pediatric oncology. That's what she does with her vocation. So she is certainly one of those many people at Grace who, who are exposed on the front lines to people who are hurting and going through a great deal of pain families that are, that are really going through seasons of trial. 
How did you feel when you first understood the assignment? I was really excited, Lena writes. There are so many people in need, and I felt like we could make that $100 go so far. Funny, we didn't have an envelope in front of us at first. At the end of the service, my husband went to put the pen back in the empty seat next to us, and lo and behold, there it was. There was an envelope, an orange envelope. How did you decide where to use the money? She said, I work with so many families with great needs, it's hard to choose what would make the most impact. I thought of a family who was so kind, and I knew they were going to have a large financial burden. I prayed for God to help me choose what to do, that, and that morning, the family came in and couldn't pay their new, higher copay. I took it as a sign I was going in the right direction. So how did you use the money? Lena writes, in my work in pediatric oncology, there's a family whose son is going to Rochester for a bone marrow transplant. That's a minimum of a seven-hour round trip, and he will be there at least two months. Dad is a single parent and has to come home to work, so he will have a big financial burden to pay for gas. I doubled the $100 with the help of my mom, and two church friends gave $20 extra. Finally, this is so cool. Finally, my friend's son donated his piggy bank money, $10, to be able to give a total of $250. I purchased a Stewart's gas card and gave it to the family Friday when they came for clinic and told them to open it, please, when they got home. Now, brothers and sisters, there are dozens and dozens of stories of compassion like this. And when you combine passion like compassion like that with genuine integrity, you've got an advertisement for God that is second to none. Church Next is going to be filled with people of integrity who live transparent lives for the glory of God. Father, thank you for this powerful story in your word today. Father, I am so excited that you want your church, your community to be a place where integrity lives, where there's authentic lives, where there's transparency, and where people seek out relationships and brothers and sisters around them that can help them live the code and encourage them when they stumble. Help us to be that kind of a people May we do it for your glory and your honor. In Jesus' name, amen.